This is a story about change and those who hope it doesn't happen too fast. Imagine waiting for something, playing your part for eight years, knowing that at the end of the journey, you will get what you wanted. And then, at the 11th hour, just as you are on the cusp of receiving the fruits of your labor, change. The rules change. The people change. The deal changes. But why? Is it you? Is this a judgment on your work? On your legacy? Or is it somebody's fault? Is there somebody out there exploiting you? Making your greatest strength a weakness? Change is important. You love change. You want to make change. But not this fast. Not like this. Hillary Clinton didn't want change in 2016. Not after all she put into her career resurgence. Not after she humbled herself to take the Secretary of State job. Not after she rebuilt the DNC. Not after she assembled the best of Obama staff with the best of her own. Not after everything. Richard Nixon didn't want change in 1960. Not after he fought his way into the White House. Not after he played the second fiddle to a man who didn't respect him. Not after he cultivated the right people in his party. Not after everything. But that's the thing about change. You don't choose when it happens. And if you're on the other side of it, you can only hope to survive it. Change came for Clinton in the form of Bernie Sanders a man who is so willing to criticize the Democratic Party itself, he isn't a Democrat. Bernie played exclusively to the progressives and called for solutions beyond where Clinton was willing to go. What was slated to be a quick tune-up in the primary for Hillary turned into a party-altering slog. Change came, and four years afterward, the solutions Bernie offered are the norm. And Clinton is out of the picture. Since the modern primary system is literally being invented in 1960, Richard Nixon did not face a challenge like Hillary did. It was more concentrated than that. Nixon comes to realize that his Republican Party is changing before his very eyes. The man who symbolizes that change is Barry Goldwater. What were once the GOP's strengths are about to become its weakness. Nixon does his best to stave off change, but in the course of 24 hours, it speeds forward faster than he could have ever imagined. Four years after 1960, Barry Goldwater is accepting the Republican Party nomination for president, and Nixon is out of the picture. So let me ask you this question. If you're on the other side of change, how hard do you fight against it? News dies and becomes history. But tonight, we raise the dead. We're in Chicago. 1952, the Republican National Convention 
and it's just turned into a bloodbath. Much has been said of evil from this platform. How much has been said about morality? How much has been said about corruption? Has it occurred to you that the thing that might be done here tonight, if you embrace the minority report, may be a greater evil than the thing they have been preaching about so fluently from this the battle between political rookie Dwight D. Eisenhower, previously a statesman and general, and Robert Taft, a senator, was neck and neck. Although ideologically, they had major differences on the spread of domestic socialism and foreign policy. Now, the Eisenhower camp believed that they didn't have a fair shot at delegates from Georgia and Texas. So the Eisenhower campaign comes up with a plan, and it's called Fair Play. They're going to contest the seating of the delegates from Georgia and Texas. It's the minority report that you just heard Taft supporter Senator Everett Dirksen talking all about morality and evil. This is masterminded by the heads of the Eisenhower campaign. Henry Cabot Lodge, who we're going to talk a lot more about this episode, and Thomas Dewey. Thomas Dewey was the Republican nominee in 1944 and 1948. So the last presidential election that just happened before this 1952 convention. He's also the Dewey in the famous Dewey Defeats Truman headline. This was a Chicago Daily Tribune newspaper cover that had erroneously printed the results of the 1948 election there's the famous photo of the actual winner, President Truman, holding the newspaper up with a big old smile. It's a fresh wound, something that is professionally and personally embarrassing to Dewey, which gives you a sense of exactly how contentious this floor fight was. Here's Everett Dirksen again, this time taking personal shots at the New York delegates and Thomas Dewey specifically. When my friend Tom Dewey was the candidate in 44 and 48, I tried to be one of his best campaigners. Re-examine your hearts before you take this action and support the minority report. Because we followed you before and you took us down the road to defeat and don't do this to us. People were pissed. And still, the convention voted to support fair play, fatally wounding Taft's push. It gave Ike the victory, but leaves a very raw wound within the party. Having little desire to patch it up, Eisenhower initially wants to nominate Minnesota Governor Harold Stassen as his vice president because Stassen agreed with most of Eisenhower's moderate policies. But the GOP party bosses knew that they had some very angry Taft supporters. Folks who needed to be heard if they were going to back Eisenhower in the general. Specifically since they'd just been labeled delegate tamperers by the Eisenhower campaign. That's a lot of dark clouds to follow a nominee with no prior political experience. Not to mention a man who's going to have to break 20 years of uninterrupted Democratic ownership of the White House. 
Hell, all Ike had to do was look over at his campaign manager, Dewey, to understand the shame of blowing a race you're supposed to win. But through the gloom breaks an undeniable ray of golden state sunshine. A man that could unite the warring factions. A red basher like Taft. A moderate like Ike. A compromise vice president. The young, untainted, hard-working, fresh-faced future of the party, Richard Nixon! Can we talk about Richard Nixon? Because throughout this entire series, we've spent precious little time talking about Richard Nixon, and that's my fault. Shame on me. Now, I know with a project like this, I'm gonna be swimming upstreams against your expectations, and I'm not gonna pretend that I'll be the final word on what you think about Richard Nixon, but do me a favor and try to separate what you know, which I'm assuming is largely based on the Watergate experience, and understand who he is now, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and more specifically, how we got there. Far as that goes, let's start here. Richard Nixon is a nerd. He founds a fraternity for outsiders at his college. He writes his own piano music. He's a theater kid. The piano music that we played at the beginning, let's go ahead and bring it back. Yeah, this music right here, this is not only Nixon playing piano, this is him playing a song he wrote. If you have ever felt ignored, discounted, shut out because other people find you cold when you just have no way to relate to them, know you have something in common with Dick. Richard is born in 1913 in Yorba Linda, California to a poor family. When he's nine, the family ranch fails, which means the Nixons have to pack up and move about 40 miles down the road to Whittier. It's there that the patriarch of the family, Francis, sets up a gas station and grocery store where Nixon will spend most of his time working as a youth. But tragedy seems to stalk this family. Nixon's brother dies at the age of seven due to tuberculosis, and shortly after that, a spot on young Richard's lung is found. His family bans him from playing sports. And what will become a life pattern for Nixon, he will not be denied. He pushes for another diagnosis. It's revealed that the spot on his lungs was just scar tissue from an earlier bout of pneumonia when he was a kid, and Nixon joins the JV football team. Well, like I said, Nixon's a nerd. He doesn't really make it off the practice squad for the football team, but he is an achiever in the classroom. One of his favorite activities, debating. There's a little foreshadowing for you. He's such a good student that he gets a tuition grant for Harvard University. Had he taken it and graduated in four years, he would be an alumni two years before JFK got accepted. But Nixon doesn't go to Harvard. His dad's sick, so he's got to stay home. He goes to Whittier College. And when he graduates with honors, he goes to Duke University so he can get his law degree. He moves back to California, meets his wife during a community theater presentation of the play The Dark Tower, and then World War II breaks out. So here's the wild thing. Nixon is owed a deferment 
from service by the United States of America because Nixon is a birthright Quaker. Going to war is literally against his religion. But Nixon won't be denied. He enlists anyway, serving in the Navy and getting two commendations before he eventually comes back to civilian life. Very soon after that, Nixon runs for office, a House of Representatives spot in 1946, and is elected. He gets to Washington the same year that JFK does, part of a rush of World War II veterans that are now joining the ranks of elected officials. But 1950 is the year he really makes his move, deciding to run for Senate in California. His opponent is Helen Goggin Douglas. Two things are famous about this election. Number one, it is Nixon playing the Red Scare for all it's worth. He calls his opponent pink down to her underwear and distributes cards with her voting record on it on pink cardstock. He wins. And in reaction, and here's the second famous thing, Douglas mints the term tricky dick to describe the young rising star that beat her. So let's take stock to where we are right now. Nixon is young. Nixon hates communists. Nixon just won a Senate seat. That makes him very well known to the Western conservatives in the Republican Party. And it sets us up perfect for 1952. So let's go ahead and get back to that convention. How much has been said about morality? Richard Nixon, the sick kid who couldn't play football, is the answer to the Republican Party's prayers. Ike picks him and puts him on the ticket. There was just one problem. See, two months after the convention, the press becomes aware of a fund. See, after Nixon's election to the Senate in 1950, some of his supporters continued to raise money for Dick's political career. The standing fund, while not illegal, is seen as hypocritical considering how hard Dick hammered on government corruption. This creates a real scare. There are voices that say, hey, maybe this kid isn't the real deal. Maybe Ike can win anyway. You should get him off the ticket. So facing his hardest challenge to date and the possible loss of his spot on Ike's ticket, Nixon rallies. Dick leaves a whistle stop tour and flies to Los Angeles. The RNC raises $75,000 to fund a half hour of television time that would go out live to the nation. At the time, it's the largest American audience to watch a television broadcast. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency. Nixon crushes it. He takes something very, very boring. Which bank account funded his family and which one funded his campaign and makes it something fun and personal. In short, he says nothing is improper, but he'll pay back the money anyway to be super safe except for one expense. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, 
The day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. I know what you're thinking. You used to be able to just ship an unsolicited dog? Oh, my God. The 50s were wild. (laughs) Anyway, the speech becomes known as the Checkers speech. Nixon takes a boring and shady issue, makes it relatable and understandable. Dick stays on the ticket, and Ike wins. By the end of his time in the Senate, Nixon spends less time in that chamber than Obama did. In fact, it's just as he's getting sworn in as vice president that JFK is making his way into the Senate. To understand how both the Democratic and Republican parties changed throughout the 60s, you really have to understand what they were before. Remember that at this point in history, there's very limited mass media. Even radio and television is functionally regional. The result of that is that local influences matter way more than they do today. And this is specifically true for politics. Since your ability to educate yourself on candidates and issues is limited, the weight of notifying and exciting voters fell on local political machines. These are the Republican and Democratic offices in your town or city or state that know your registration, they send you mailers, they organize events. Leading up to 1960, They are also tremendously powerful authorities on picking candidates locally and at their national convention, nationally. National parties in 1960 are more about letting you know who to vote for and less about any specific ideology. Both parties had liberal and conservative wings that were straining under new issues of the day that defied conventional wisdom. Stuff like civil rights and communism. Sometimes a liberal Democrat would be the standard bearer. Sometimes a moderate Republican would get the nod. As long as the National Party could whip up as much support as possible for a candidate, it was doing its job. Put simply... Candidates had positions, parties not so much, at least compared to where we are today. Now, that's not to say that there weren't fractious tribes within each that wanted to push the National Party further one way or another. For the GOP, the most powerful wing were the moderates, based on the East Coast. And they very much enjoyed placing a star moderate in Dwight Eisenhower in the White House for two terms. 
When he enters the political arena in 1952, Eisenhower knows he's a transcendent political force. Like Ulysses S. Grant with the Civil War and Zachary Taylor with the Mexican-American War before him, Eisenhower held the highest-ranking military position in a massive conflict and now looked to parlay that notoriety into politics. He was courted by the Democrats in 1948, but declined to make a move until 1952 when he runs as a Republican. Eisenhower's two terms were very good economically for the United States. The even-handed temperament of the military man exemplified the can-do spirit of the 50s. He's a president that people could admire and often forgot existed. In fact, that was a major source of criticism for Eisenhower when he was in office. The D.C. press abhorred how little he popped into the public eye. By the time that Ike leaves the office, he's named by presidential historians as the 22nd most important president. It's only been in the last few decades as private memos have become public that folks have realized exactly how much his hidden hand was active behind the scenes. His philosophy of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and if you do fix it, do it quietly, also bled into his party politics. See, Eisenhower understood that change was coming. In 1956, the Democrats made their biggest gains in the House since the age of FDR. But Ike was far more interested in trying to make sure that the full effect of a Democratic reckoning never happened. Long past the heyday of the New Deal, the Democrats were split between Southern leaders vehemently opposed to civil rights and Northern progressives who found the issue a moral imperative. The fight had produced two laughably weak runs by Adelaide Stevenson, a progressive who ran without the strong support of the Southern bosses and lost big without their blessing. The GOP, on the other hand, had a position that would only get stronger in Ike's mind. They had a muscular donor base in New York and a good relationship with business leaders, a growing voter base in the West, and a gigantic pool of disgruntled Democratic voters either in the North or in the South, depending on who the Dems nominated. All Eisenhower had to do was stem some of the rabble-rousers in his own party. Specifically, the conservatives in the West who pushed for the party to specifically represent small, limited, federal government. These guys never warmed to Ike. They saw him as yet another capitulator who missed his window to dismantle the FDR-era New Deal federal programs and had an outdated view on the creeping threat of communism. But for Ike, only way to lose would be to surrender to the purists. The purists who wanted everybody to think like they did. The purists that wanted to limit the big tent GOP to only one way of thinking ideologically. The same purists who put Richard Nixon on the ticket in 1952. Which brings us to this. 
Where does Nixon fit in Eisenhower's grand plan for the Republican Party? It's a question that only creeps closer as Ike's two terms in office are coming to an end. Stephen Ambrose, a man who wrote biographies for both Ike and Nixon, put it like this, quote, Ike liked Dick well enough, but then Ike liked almost everybody. Eisenhower, the president, regarded Nixon, the potential successor, as unready. In his first term, Ike has a heart attack, and at that point, he has even more second thoughts about keeping Nixon even on the re-election ticket. He writes this in his diary, quote, He has serious problems. I'm not going to say that he's the only individual I'd have for vice president. There's nothing to be gained politically by ditching him. He's going to be a comer for years now. I want a bevy of young fellows to be available by then. End quote. So what did Nixon want? To this point, it's kind of unclear. Despite milking the coming Cold War for everything it was worth, Nixon's a moderate, and on some of the most aggressive conservative plans to dismantle the New Deal or turn American foreign policy isolationist, he doesn't make super aggressive moves. In 1952, Nixon's selective flexibility put him in the White House, but As he readied his 1960 campaign, he knew it would be a hurdle for him to clear. There was one man, though, who agreed with Eisenhower that 1960 was the time to permanently cement the Republican Party as a moderate answer to the infighting Democrats, Nelson Rockefeller. Ike liked. Rockefeller. Like, if Ike liked everybody, he really liked Rockefeller. In fact, you could say that Rockefeller might have been who Ike was referring to in his bevy of young men that he wanted to be ready by 1960. The two were totally in sync when it came to policy. In 1952, Ike takes Rockefeller's recommendations in reorganizing the executive branch, including creating the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Rockefeller is soon named the head of that department, where he takes action in adding 10 million people to Social Security, something that boiled the blood of the New Deal-hating conservatives. Rockefeller leaves Washington in 1956, and in 1958, he's elected governor of New York State by over 600,000 votes. Understand this. Nelson Rockefeller is insanely popular in his home state of New York. He was once carried out on the shoulders of an adoring crowd in Spanish Harlem when he delivered a stump speech en espanol. In Nixon, Rockefeller saw a conservative-only future for the Republican Party. And in secret, he developed a plan to stop it. Rockefeller put together a clandestine campaign office and put into motion a plan to steal the nomination from Nixon. Since it would be bad form to challenge directly, he worked to secure influence in secret hoping Nixon wouldn't poll well and he could appear as a party savior. He also had one ace in the hole, that if he got close 
he could count on Eisenhower, Nixon's own boss, to back his play. In December 1959, Rockefeller campaigns in a few southern states to test the waters outside of the Northeast. It doesn't go well. He draws sparse crowds and less headlines. He starts to believe that he's being spurned by state party officials who don't want to rock the boat with Nixon. He returns to New York, understanding that 1960 is not his year for the White House. And he's real salty about it. So he pivots. Instead, he's going to make sure the party platform would reflect his liberal, moderate views. If he can't be the big man on campus, he's going to handcuff Nixon into doing what he wants. And he had a pretty big chip to offer to make it happen. He could suggest that he would be Nixon's vice president. It's a move that would greatly strengthen Nixon's electoral map. If the GOP could count on New York State's electoral college votes, it would be almost impossible for a Northeastern liberal like Jack Kennedy to put together enough votes to win. And what's more, Nixon knows it. The night before his party's convention, Richard Nixon gets on a plane from Washington, D.C. Where he's going and what he does there will have lasting reverberations in the Republican Party for decades. He's about to surrender. He's about to sign the Treaty of Fifth Avenue. Amongst all the differences between now and then, here's something that's almost identical. The drawing up of a party's platform is long, laborious, and angry. You're going to see it coming up, and now you can even follow it on Twitter and social media. There are fights, really big passionate fights about what goes in to each party's platform. This is basically the ground rules of what you have to believe if you are running under the banner of either the Democrats or the Republicans. And it's the same in 1960. So you can imagine how good it feels once everything gets written. You've been fighting with all these people that you only disagree so passionately with because you agree with them on so much other stuff that finally, when it's done, there's gotta be this sense of relief, weight being lifted off your shoulders. So put yourself in that frame of mind as we go to a hotel room in Chicago in 1960 when the Republican Party has just finished their platform. In fact, they are only waiting for it to be typed up when the phone rings. It's Richard Nixon on the eve of the convention, the night that will be the biggest achievement of his political career 
Nixon flew to New York secretly to meet with Rockefeller. The meeting in Rockefeller's apartment reportedly begins with Nixon begging the governor to join the ticket. Rockefeller refuses. And so the conversation turns to the platform. What followed alters the course of the Republican Party forever. Here's how Nixon staffer Richard Hess remembers it. The phone rings, and this is no ordinary call. Nixon has flown secretly to New York to meet with arch foe Nelson Rockefeller in his Fifth Avenue apartment. They're now telling Percy what they have to put in the platform. There are three phone connections in the suite. Percy's on one, Rod Perkins, Rockefeller's representative, is on the second, and I'm one of the people rotating on the third. The call lasts for nearly four hours, except when the hotel switchboard operator pulls the plugs at midnight and goes home. That caused a 15-minute interruption. End quote. The result? A specific call for anti-segregation. A call for more defense spending, a major sore spot for Eisenhower, who believed that the American military was already far superior without an unlimited budget, and a hardened commitment to health insurance for the aged, a precursor to Medicare, you know, the same Medicare that modern Democrats here in 2019 and 2020 want to expand to all Americans? That's in the Republican platform in 1960. All of these changes, controversial ones, are done without consultation from the party bosses. They're done without consultation from Nixon's own men in Chicago. They're done without consultation from the sitting president of the United States. By the time Nixon gets to Chicago himself, all hell is broken loose. And the man who might as well have met him at the airport riding a pale white horse is Barry Goldwater. The conservatives feel betrayed. They loathe Rockefeller and felt that they'd been silenced at the 11th hour again. And this time it was by Nixon, the man they assumed would at least moderate the Eastern establishment from continuing their condescending reign. And what did he do? What did he do in the last moment? He goes to New York and takes their orders like an errand boy. What was said to be a contentious but manageable coronation turns into an insurrection. And Goldwater is the tip of that spear. Uh, Richard Harkness reports that Senator Goldwater fired back today at Vice President Nixon and his news conference stand for an aggressive pro-civil rights line. The Arizona senator said Nixon's position for full Negro rights is going to cost him Southern support and the election in November. In any case, there is a sizable demonstration point here in the hall, horn blowing, sign waving. As you know, two or three states, South Carolina, Arizona, and a few delegates in other states have pledged to him for president or vice president. And so, Goldwater takes the stage. We must not be lured by lust for novelty. We dare not let ourselves become so fascinated 
by so-called bold programs that we forget soundness is more important than a superficial thing they call boldness. He's got the hearts of the conservatives, but he knows he doesn't have the delegates. After a few more machinations, he removes himself from his symbolic contention. So let's get a good look at exactly what's at stake. The Democrats have a personality crisis on their hands since the electoral strength is in the civil rights-hating South and the current frontrunner is a pro-civil rights candidate from the North. When Nixon strikes the Treaty of Fifth Avenue with Rockefeller without getting him as a vice president, the GOP essentially takes the moral high ground without securing those precious New York State electoral votes that they desperately need. Nixon had a choice to boldly stand on either side of states' rights conservatism or a bold path of progressivism, and he was so scared of both, he chose neither, hoping a pathway of stability and a taped-together alliance would be enough. It's something that reminded me so much of Hillary Clinton in 2016. If you remember, the 2016 Democratic National Convention had its own 11th-hour scandal, the leaking of internal DNC emails. Emails that many, including and specifically Bernie supporters, believe showed that there was internal bias against Bernie Sanders. The controversy was enough for Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the head of the DNC, to lose her job. By the first day, you could tell that the atmosphere was poisoned. Bernie supporters openly jeered speakers who were trying to rally for the nominee Hillary Clinton. Even die-hard Bernie supporter Sarah Silverman got it. Bernie, can I just say, to the Bernie or bust people, you're being ridiculous. Thank God they can fix this in post. As we would find out, leaving a convention without unity was not a winning strategy for the Democrats in 2016. But back to 1960. The Treaty on Fifth Avenue also led to a further separation between Nixon and Eisenhower. Despite his issues inside the party, the nation really did like Ike. Strong support on the campaign trail would have been certainly a huge advantage for Dick. Instead, Eisenhower fell into the background. He was not only largely absent on the campaign trail, he actively hurt Nixon with comments during the race. Yet, the inner party angst or distance from Ike wouldn't be the most disastrous move made in Chicago by Nixon. That honor goes to Nixon's vice presidential selection, Henry Cabot Lodge. The same man who helped get Eisenhower elected in 1952 by pissing off all of the South, but also one of two men in the United States of America that had already lost an election to John F. Kennedy. It was Lodge's Senate seat that Kennedy took in 1952. He was also just a weird guy. He insisted on taking a nap every day. He did it in fancy pajamas, which the press liked to make fun of. And he's a lackluster campaigner that refuses to coordinate talking points with Nixon. Compare that to the man that Kennedy eventually selected, 
the crafty Lyndon Baines Johnson, a dynamic campaigner who knew the South as well as anyone. But that selection would not happen easily. Raise the Dead is research written, recorded, and performed by me, Justin Robert Young. You can find the full list of our sources for this series at our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com. That's also where you can find our audiobook compilation and an ebook of transcripts, both of which include a bonus episode. I'd like to thank my senior strategist, Tamar Sandell, along with Tom Merritt, Brett Roundsville, and John Teasdale for their extraordinary patience in helping me put this together. And you can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Justin R. Young. A big thank you to Bar355 for their excellent research facilities. And now, a few things I didn't have a chance to get to. All right, so let's talk about Ike. First things first, Eisenhower was very much a moderate, and and it kind of underscores, hopefully, what we got across in this episode, that the ideological fluidity between Republicans and Democrats was far greater in this time period than it is now. In fact, this is kind of the turning point where Barry Goldwater becomes very upset with Nixon, and then by the next election, he is now running on the idea that the Republican Party should be the conservative party, and that's that. However, Eisenhower's recruited by the Democrats to run, and that says something. It also says something that he didn't want to run as a Democrat. He wanted to run as a Republican because he felt that it gave him little bit more of a shot. Oh, also something to mention here. There are more Democrats than Republicans in the country at this point. Roughly three to two. So it is a bit of a harder road to hoe for Eisenhower, but that's what he chooses. We're not going to talk a ton more about Eisenhower going forward, so I do want to get this out. One of the most frustrating things for Ike is the idea of the military-industrial complex. Now, this is something that you've probably heard before, but it's Ike that gives it a name, and he's got a very specific bugaboo with the 1960 race. If you're unaware with what the military-industrial complex is, uh, basically, it's just the gigantic corporations, uh, Boeing, Raytheon... Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, for example, that all fundamentally exist so they can build things for the military. Now remember, Eisenhower is our last general president, and he's the one that's like, hey look, these companies that are selling us overpriced stuff is bad. It's a waste of money, and it doesn't make us any safer. He calls for an end to this, or at least a a sobering of it. And that's during the Cold War. He's very pissed off 
about the idea of the missile gap. And this is propagated by the Kennedy campaign. The missile gap is the idea that the USSR is building more missiles faster than the United States is. It is a really, really, really sore spot for Eisenhower because Eisenhower is currently spying on the USSR with the U-2 plane, but he can't say it because it's a secret. He knows for a fact that the USSR is not building more missiles than we are, and yet, here we are. All right, Nelson Rockefeller. Of everybody that I research or, or, or you know, read about as part of my research for this project, Nelson Rockefeller is among the most fascinating. He really is, to me, an example of a fascinating alternate history for the Republican Party. His big idea here is to have the Republican Party remain a moderate internationalist institution because he does feel, like Eisenhower, that that's just always going to be the winning play while the Democrats are going through their identity crisis. And yet, in my opinion, he's an early example of the nation's complicated relationship with New York, both the city and the state. Rockefeller is very much a creature of New York City. Obviously, he becomes governor of the state. But there will always be a gap between how important New York thinks itself is and the rest of the country. And I just have this idea that it is a... <laughs> A subconscious thing that the rest of the country just wants to punish New York when it comes to seeking the highest office in the land. Next time, LBJ's eyes are still on the presidency. He, along with all the other candidates who avoided the primaries like the plague, put into action their own plan to damage the surging Kennedy and take that spot for themselves. What follows is a Game of Thrones level palace intrigue in the city that would go on to define liberal influence, Los Angeles. A tug of war in the city of stars on the next Raise the Dead. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>